0: So uh, in this season of no rain, I have suffered a very obvious and suburban shame in my life. My lawn is brown. It's brown. I'm free to admit it. The way I know it's brown is not because it's browner than others in the neighborhood. That's true. But I know it's brown because it is right next to the greenest lawn in the neighborhood. That's how you know. If you examine my lawn, you'll see an unmistakable line between my neighbors and mine. It is straight. I don't know how this is possible. But it is a perfectly straight line of green to brown, all right? It's like a line of demarcation, like an oasis in the Sahara or, or like the tanning lines of marching band kids, you know what I mean? That's, that's what it looks like. It's like so brown, so green. I don't know how he does it, but every time I see him now, I feel his, I feel his disappointment, all right? As he walks out and he looks at it, this is this guy's lawn. What's going on? Actually, people in the neighborhood, and true, I have seen this. This is not a pastor embellishment, okay? I've seen people walk by and just stop, amazed at how brown and then green the lawns are. So anyway, uh, thankfully, we got some rain. But I water my lawn. I water my lawn. There's no way I'm a part of his tribe. But I am a pleaser by nature. And all of us are to some degree. We are all kind of incurable pleasers. They come from all walks of life. You know, it's kind of hardwired into us. This desire to gain the acceptance of others, to have them see us as important or worthwhile. This is just part of who we are. We want to gain the applause, the well done. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being good at stuff. There's nothing wrong with people seeing that you're good at stuff. The problem is when we would rather please people than be good to people. When we'd rather please people than be generous or kind. We'd rather please people than be the right kind of people. So the struggle here is that the desire to be a pleaser, the desire to please others, it twists and it distorts us. We are less human as a result. And this is the stuff that fuels the marketers of all the markets that single-handedly power social media. For some of you actually this morning, you, and I, I mean this in, the, in really deep sympathy, you may be in a place where you are nearly paralyzed by the thought of what others think about you. This may be a driving force in your life. Now, all that might not be news, but, but this might be. That it's entirely normal, in my experience as a minister, for people pleasers to also be God pleasers by nature. To be the kind of people who bring that need to please into our relationship with God. And I believe the result is that we may find ourselves at a distance. We move God into kind of this impersonal role. You know, he's not... Father, shepherd, he's king, Lord. Those are good titles, but we want to create distance from God. We tolerate kind of the non-productive elements of worship. It's weird to show up and to sing songs and stuff because it doesn't feel like we're doing anything. Right? We're not accomplishing anything. Worship is boring. Prayer might be dusty because what we're really about is pleasing God, doing right and, and making him kind of favor us. And it's even worse, by the way, if you're mad at God or disappointed with God, that's if you're a pleaser and you're mad at God about something, you stay away from God entirely. It makes no sense to show up to worship if you're mad at God, right? If you're a God pleaser, because why would you perform for him if he won't perform for you? This is the mindset. The people pleasing finds its way into a God pleasing sort of life. Now, what this creates and the reason one of the reasons why this matters is it creates this really inconsistent and unpleasant religion, a very unpleasant kind of Christianity. We find that it's, it's not difficult at all. Like the book of James says, to speak blessing and cursing at the same time, to call ourselves Christians and gossip in his church. We don't find that to be weird at all. It's normal. All the churches, you know, they say, hey, we accept you as you are, you know, really nice. But then in those communities, we compete and we gossip about just how well we accept those crummy sinners. You know, we compete. Our Christian ethics, this is what it comes down to. They don't match our theological confessions. If we're God pleasers, we find it really difficult to be connected to God. So the result is a church that's kind of anxious. It's seeking a religious experience, but it's not seeking Jesus. It's a social club that meets, believe it or not, at the worst hour of the week, right? This is what the church can become. So this is the struggle. We are pleasers. And you know that that old expression, you know, uh, to a person with a hammer, all the world is a nail. This is kind of what we do. If we're pleasers by nature, we bring that into every area of life. Everything. Or think about it this way. You know, you've got a friend, who's stuck in a pit and the walls are too high. He can't get out. All he's got is a shovel. If you go to that person and you say, hey, just work harder, you'll get out of there. Or if you go to that person and you say, you know what you should do is sing songs about getting out of the pit. Or you go to that person and you say, hey, here's a basket, tithe. And then maybe you'll get out of the pit, right? Or you just say, just work hard, just be better. And then you leave. Naturally, they're just going to dig deeper. That's the only tool they have. And for us who want to please God, that's all we've got. This is the situation that Paul's talking about in the book of Galatians. We've got a people who are stuck in a pit. And they're stuck in a pit. And the only way they want to get out is by digging deeper. Using their own hands, their own arms, their own shovels. So we're all pleasers this way. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow for people who are professionally better Christians than you and me. Right? The idea that you can't just be good and better than everybody else. And that's okay. That Christianity is not about your competence. Well, look, Flannery O'Connor... an old Southern writer, I say old not because she, was, she died actually young, but because, you know, she lived in the middle of the last century. In particular, she, she wrote a short story called Revelation. And in it, the main character is imagining, she's seeing, she's having visions of people being taken up to heaven. All right. And she's pretty self-righteous. I mean, that's the whole idea of the story she's very obviously self-righteous in a like grandma always does what's right sort of self-righteous way okay so here's here's what flannery writes. she says she saw she's looking she sees a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire so she's talking about people now being taken up to heaven right She says, upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives and bands of blacks and white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like her and her husband, had always had a little bit of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. They were good people she leaned in to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity. They were accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. The Bible confronts God-pleasing people with a God-pleasing concept, a complex and says, you have to have faith instead. Even your good works are as good as dust. They are burned away. Faith is the only way to relate to God. So what does that mean? So often we discuss faith as if it was kind of like a, just a theological truth or a philosophical abstraction or uh, just an intellectual accomplishment. You figure it out. That's faith. But faith is not an inner feeling of assurance. I want to tell you that this morning. I hope you hear that. Faith is not just this inner feeling of assurance. It can't be. You know, what about for those of us who struggle with inner feelings? What about the disciples? Their inner feelings were as unpredictable, topsy-turvy as the water of Galilee, right? This This is who they were. I'm not going to say that the person who struggles with clinical depression or the person who struggles with OCD or the person who's been abused and neglected to the point that they don't trust their inner feelings, can't have faith. Faith has to be more than an inner assurance. In the scriptures, faith is looking to Jesus and applying what we see. It is looking to Jesus and applying what we see. Notice it doesn't say, and I'm not saying, faith is really good people or really happy people looking to Jesus, or really calm and never perturbed people looking to Jesus. It's like we've said before, getting on the plane, even if you dig your fingernails into the armrest when you take off. Faith is belief, but according to Jesus, faith is also help me in my unbelief. So if it's just inner persuasion, right? If it's just kind of an irrational confidence with no evidence, no basis, then it's like that middle school kid that's 0 for 17 from the three-point line and keeps shooting, you know? It, faith, is, faith is not like that. I'm not asking you, and Jesus is not asking you to subject yourself to a faith that makes no sense, to orient your life around something that has no basis. It would be cruel, abusive, inhuman to do that. Instead, he calls us to place our faith around the finished work of jesus christ we place our faith on not in our work but in jesus's finished work placing your faith means looking at the finished work of jesus christ who stood in your place he took on your sin and mine, like we talked about the last couple of weeks he took on your burden your chains he bore the burden we couldn't bear he went to the cross he despised the shame he rose up from the dead we know all of this This is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, when you become a member in a church like ours, we have this language that all churches in our denomination use. And one of them that I think is so useful is this vow that you take. And it says, do you rest and receive Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel? Do you rest upon and receive Christ alone? There's not a lot of performance in that. Do you rest and receive Christ alone? Look at this passage of scripture from Romans chapter five. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope. Of the glory of God. So, when the Apostle Paul, who wrote both Galatians and Romans, when he uses this language of faith, he's saying, This is what it looks like. It looks like being okay, being belonging and having approval and being pleased with God, not pleasers of God, through Jesus Christ. We obtain access by faith into grace and we get to stand on it. So, this morning we have to move from being pleasers of God. This is, the, this is the burden, I think, of the passage. To move from being pleasers of God to partakers of his grace. That we move from being pleasers of God to people who are pleased with God. In my former life, uh, when I was a line cook, I would sometimes come into work and I'd come after things had gotten going and it, it became really incredibly busy. And uh, the tickets you'd walk on the line, there were tickets coming from the printer and there were tickets lined up. On a rail, and then the tickets had fallen down onto the ground and they'd been kind of trampled on, and you had to like pick up the slack and get things moving. And I remember the feeling that pushed me to new heights of competency was fear. And the fear was if I don't get these tickets moving, if we don't get the food out on time, people are gonna leave. There's fear constantly in that performance. I find that many encounter Jesus with that model, that to belong to Jesus Christ is to kind of put on your apron and get back there on the line and get the tickets moving in the hopes that he's not going to walk out on you. But this isn't the model of the Christian life at all. This isn't grace into which we stand. The Christian life says that unless you can feast with me, not cook my food, unless you can feast with me, abide in me, even as the epistle of John tells us, eat my flesh and drink my blood. You can't get any more provocative than that, right? You can't get any more to the point. You can't please me. You can't belong to me unless you get out of the kitchen. We have to move from the kitchen of fear to the table of faith. This is the movement of faith in Jesus. This is how we become who we're called to be, from the kitchen to the table. Galatians 5.2 begins with a warning. I think it's one we need to hear. If you turn away from the good news of the gospel, that you are God's own beloved daughter or son, and you instead take on yet another way of justifying yourself, then you will have worked yourself into a terrible condition. Look at the passage again. Look at verse 2 and 3. I say, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again, every man who accepts it will be obligated to keep the whole law. Obligated to keep the whole law. The idea is being a debtor. You will become a debtor. And... Some of you are in debt. Some of you may be in deep debt. Some of you know that experience, that pressure. To be in spiritual debt is the same thing. You never feel at rest. And what Paul is saying, you can never rest if your hope is in the stuff that you can do to make yourself right with God. Verse 2 and 3 really tell us that taking on the role of pleaser you're actually standing in opposition to faith. You are. If you apply the people-pleasing to God-pleasing, you're standing in opposition to faith. You're not looking upon Jesus. You're taking upon yourself the qualifications. You're taking upon yourself the scars, the blood, the need to stand right before God. You're taking the place of Jesus. This is really difficult to overcome. The problem is you and I, are, we're wired for that need to please. So I'm going to bring up yet again David Foster Wallace's quote, which is one of my favorites about why this makes us into debtors and why we need to run away. He says this, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Anything. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. That's the truth. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level... We know all of this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, and parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. And this, my friends, is where we get to talk about circumcision, <laughs> which is your life verse and on the bumper sticker on your car. If people still use them, I'm Sure. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed. Paul is using lots of figurative language here. Severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. You have taken the knife to your soul. Now, the imagery culturally and theologically is important. Circumcision was a right of inclusion. It told God's people that they belong, okay? Okay critically important yet when christ comes this sign changes there's no more any need for blood jesus has bled all out all the bleeding that needs to happen and so suddenly the way to be included is to be identified not with the promise before christ but the promise now in christ and so there's no longer any need for the same kind of sign it changes There's no more bloody signs. Now, the analogy of circumcision is actually really helpful for another reason here. If you have questions about what circumcision is exactly, ask your friend. Uh, Now, circumcision, I'm sorry for the oddities of the discussion, okay? I apologize. It's an appropriate analogy. There's total commitment here. You gotta be totally committed, which is the way we know that we mean business. People were getting circumcised as adults, not as babies. This is important. We need, and they felt they needed skin in the game. I'm sorry, I apologize. The circumcision cult really puts a sharp point on the question of faith, all right? Paul intentionally is trying to bring all of this language into the conversation. It's important. Why? Because the question is this, and it's the same one for us this morning. Are we going to look to the blood of Jesus, or we, would we rather bleed ourselves? Thoreau said, Every man is the builder of a temple called his body, to the God that he worships. We are all sculptors and painting and painters, and our material is our own flesh and blood and bones. We use our bodies to make our worlds. We use our bodies to worship. We use our flesh and bones to make a life for ourselves. We bleed for the things that we care about. That's clear in the cult that Paul is confronting. It's clear for us as we attempt to deal with the Bible's insistence that we live a life of faith. We are children with hammers. We have a friend in the pit. We're the friend in the pit. We dig as furiously as we can. We're frustrated and we're angry that we can't seem to dig our way out. Do you know what that feels like, right? you experience this we're working our hands to shreds we're crying out god don't you see how hard i'm working don't you see my blood and sweat what's needed is something or someone that can plead more powerfully than our blood can plead this is the source of paul's angst here the apostle because there is blood that can plead hebrews chapter 10 says this therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through the curtain, that is through his own flesh, that he tore his own flesh to welcome us in. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. I love this, I love this expression. With a true heart in full assurance of faith. Think about that. Honesty about who you really are while also being welcomed by God. Only Christianity can do this. Perfect honesty and perfect acceptance at the same time. Why? Because of the place that Jesus made for us. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For why? Because you're really good at it. No. No. Because he who promised is what? Are you still awake? I just have to check. He who promised is faithful. Yeah. Wow. What do we do? We, we, we wake up and we bleed for these other saviors. That's what we do. Savior of work or entertainment or rest. Maybe we, we wake up and we're grieved. We're just in grief. We're just sad. We're lonely. We're whatever else. We try to figure out how we'll make things work. So we tap a vein. We go to work. We go to the refrigerator or we go to the computer. Best research tells us we've never been lonelier since we made friends on the internet. We tap a vein, a pint here, a pint there. Thoreau says, hey, build something this way. We've sculpted something. We've painted something. Is it good? Will it save our lives? This is the anxiety that the people of God encounter when they turn away from faith in Christ. Can you cut yourself enough to make yourself bleed? Punish yourself enough to please God. Wow. Christianity, let me just say this as we move toward the close here. Christianity is opposed to this practice. Making your own way by your own blood. Can't say that strongly enough. Christianity is opposed to the bloodletting. It's opposed to the cutting. You are sons and daughters in Christ. Christianity at its core should be life-giving, life-saving. But it's no less bloody. It's bloody because of Christ who is bloodied for you. So you put down the shovel, you put down the knife, you put down the phone, you look to Jesus. He opened a way through the curtain, which was his own flesh. I can't bleed enough, work hard enough, you can't make your wife happy enough, your boss impress enough, your kids safe enough, your BMI low enough, your bank account fat enough to compete with the sacrificial finished work of Jesus Christ. You can't. And when you know that, you will finally begin to rest. You'll finally begin to rest. Hebrews 12:1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run a race with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are so bad at this. (laughs) And that's okay, all right? God love us. We are so bad at faith. One way I know that is because we take this verse and we turn it into a, Jesus did something, now you do it. You know? You probably grew up somewhere, if you were around Christians, you probably had this on a poster somewhere on a wall, motivating you to be better, right? The motive is for you to be a witness to what Jesus has done and for it to so overwhelm you that endurance happens as a result that you recognize that not only can I not run, sorry to pick on middle schoolers, I'm in a middle school track meet. I am running the hurdles and I'm falling all over the place. And if you've ever seen that, the illustration makes perfect sense. This is who we are. And Jesus says, my sheep, my people, I bleed for them. It's beautiful. The work of belonging is done already through Christ. It's for us to believe together, to hope together. Let me give you just... Some very basic quick thoughts on how it would look to make faith kind of our operative condition. To get out of the kitchen and to the table, right? It's looking to Jesus amidst trial and persecution or difficulties. Not disconnecting those, but worshiping into those things. Seeking God in the midst of those things. Second, uh, seeing pride and gossip as non-options. I think that's important. We can't excuse these things when we cut others. That's the person that Jesus loves and you too. These things aren't options. Assessing our own worth and value in terms of the preciousness of the blood of Christ, not what we've done. Seeing ourselves the way that Jesus sees us, right? Measuring our ambitions, our anxieties, all of that by the mission and work of Christ. We measure those things. We place them in context. You know, ultimately, it's it's not what Jesus, what would Jesus do? It's what has Jesus done this has to govern the way that we live in Christ. So what happens? What happens when we believe this? We become not just not temples to ourselves, but temples for the world. People show up, man, they just walk in and suddenly the gospel makes more sense. They can exhale. They instinctively exhale, they relax. They know the presence of authentic faith even before they believe it. The world of people-pleasing, God-pleasing, frantic, exhausted, brown or green lawn sinners, they're saved by grace through faith. That's what they discover to the glory of God. Let me pray for us.